Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and Premier Lighting. Welcome to Bakersfield Observe with Richard Bean, a podcast for and about Bakersfield and Kern County. Richard's guests are newsmakers, influencers, and personalities who address topics of interest to you and your neighbors and your community. The discussion is fast, informative, and always civil. Now, here's your host, Richard Bean. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of the new Bakersfield Observed podcast recorded right here at the American General Media offices off California Avenue, Highway 99 in downtown Bakersfield. This podcast airs weekly and it will complement, it does complement the work of my Bakersfield Observe blog. Welcome to the podcast. I am Richard Bean. By the way, you can access this podcast via Spotify or wherever you access your podcast. You can also access it on kernradio.com. Look, The idea behind this podcast is simple, to provide a forum for the Bakersfield community to gather and discuss the issues that confront us. And today, we'll be talking about the 2020 census, a census that shows a changing America, a drastically shrinking white population, and fundamental changes in the American family, and what it means to identify yourself as an as an American. Joining us today are Supervisor Leticia Perez and CSUB Economics Professor Richard Gearhart, two people whose opinions I value on an important subject as this one. Welcome, guys. It is so nice to be here uh, and so nice to see this young professor who looks 15 years younger than me. How exciting. (laughs) Well, thank you guys for having me. It's fun. It's great to have you guys. Let, 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 let's get at it. We were having kind of an animated conversation going into this, so we'll try to continue it. Look, before I get to the census, uh, I've got an august group here. I do want to pick your brain on a couple topical interests here. I'm going to start with you, Leticia. Uh, the recall of Gavin Newsom, the elections coming up September uh, 14th. Uh, from what we read in the polls, uh, a lot of the conventional wisdom seems to be this guy could get recalled. I personally don't believe it. I just find it hard to believe that any Democrat in the state of California would vote in a way that would align themselves with people they consider deplorable, unless, of course, they didn't vote. What's your take? Well, first of all, I don't think uh, too many Democrats see the other side as deplorable necessarily. So so let's hold individuals accountable for their individual bad behavior, Richard Bean, okay? Right. But, but, but no, fair enough. I think it's something to be said in a state where Dems outnumber Republicans three to one and Democrats are concerned about a recall. You know, I really think... It's a golden opportunity for Democrats to hit the reset button and take a hard look at, one, why your base is so unexcited about what you're offering or trying to fight, right? Mm -hmm. And just essentially what as a party we are doing to be relevant and to have candidates that can cross over, right, and to really be a a reasonable voice for people in California. You know, I, I really do think it's a it's a moment to reset, and I hope that Dems will look at it, you know, with an open heart and open mind because it's it doesn't bear well for us. What's your prediction? You know, I think he wins uh, in a small margin, mm-hmm. which again, you know, is 
indicative of the larger right. reality of Democrats, not just here in California, Richard, but at the national level. You know, I'm, I am concerned about the quality of leadership and the kind of people that we're putting forward. I think, you know, I think we need better leaders. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. Dr. Gearhart, does I, this recall have a chance? Yes, I can't disagree with what anything Supervisor Perez just said. Um, I, I would just argue, again, that it's kind of that talk about how these coast, you know, these so-called coastal elites tend to ignore flyover America, even the Central Valley. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's had terrible optics these past few months, uh, the French Laundry and then sending his kids to a uh, camp unmasked when he was mandating that. But he didn't read an email. OK, um, yeah, I, I just I, I think that he probably will remain. But I hope that this is a wake up call and maybe a sign for um, a Democratic contender for 2022 for the general uh, governor election. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but uh, Supervisor Perez, this seems like an odd way to select a new governor if we're going to recall one, where you have a list of 40-something candidates and it's it, 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 the top vote getter, basically. Well, right? democracy's messy. It's messy every time. And, you know, the idea of getting people to understand their government and to have some sense about the person that we're actually putting forward and and really a way to judge and gauge their character I think is really quite complex Richard before the pandemic 78% of Americans were living check to check before the pandemic According to NPR, 78% of Americans living check to check. Okay, as we get to the discussion on race, and I've said this on your show before, that's a whole lot of white folks yeah. who aren't doing so good. Right. You know, let's be honest, right, about the Rust Belt or the Midwest, and we look at our economy and the way in which things, I'm certainly not the expert, but if you look at places like where I went to law school, Richard, in the Midwest, uh, Northwest Indiana, I spent a year in Gary, Indiana, which where Donald Trump is from, where Michael Jackson's from, kind mm -hmm. of its own little mm -hmm. magical place. It was a steel mill haven and, yeah. you know, all these, Rust Belt. All yeah. these black families with really good jobs and a safe community. Well, I spent a year there uh, helping middle-aged black men file for... A bankruptcy because that steel mill industry was bye-bye and not a lot of thought given right to the Americans that have to stay back and not just stomach the reality of not having the same amount of money but the psychological reality mm -hmm. right of going uh, I used to be really well paid at a great job I was going to pass out of my son and hold my head up at home and the whole nine right and now my wages are th one third of what they were you know I, I think the whole structure is uh, is dysfunctional in a way that is no longer acceptable to the average American. And by that, I mean the 78% that's working hard, Richard, mm -hmm. right? That's that's trying to close the skills gap, trying to acquire education in a place where it is so outrageously expensive to do so. And there's a frustration about what we see going on with folks that have lots of means, God bless them, mm -hmm. uh, and with essentially all the rest of America, which is right. going, something's wrong here. Right, right. Anything to add to that? I, I really can't add anything well thought out beyond that. I mean, okay. I would agree wholeheartedly. Again, and I, 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 I want to get to the topic at, but at hand, but I did want to hit on the coronavirus and the rollout. Now, uh, uh, the people who are have uh, 
suppressed immune systems are getting a third dose. It looks like a third dose, booster dose, dose if you will, will uh, uh, be ready for the entire population of those willing to take it in, in late September. And yet, Professor Gearhart, we are more divided than ever over this thing. And you had an incident this morning that I think really crystallizes what this country is going through. Can you share that with us? Yeah, I went to get my hair cut and I was wearing my mask and I was told to get out. Talk to me. You're wearing a mask. Wearing a mask. Oh You're um, walking into walking into a barber shop okay. to get my hair cut, and I believe the owner told me to get out of the shop. I was not welcome there wearing a mask because you all you did was walk. Wear, did you com, did you make have any complaints? No, I that that barber shop. Um, I've used them before. They haven't worn masks during the pandemic. I've never had an issue with that because I've always worn my mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and walked in this morning and was told that. They didn't want to uh, utilize my business, so I will be going elsewhere. Wow! Exclamation point. Does any of this surprise us? No. How do we? I mean, I can't. There is not a facet of my life, and I won't bore you with what I do all day. But whether I'm exercising in the morning or meeting with friends in the afternoon, when this doesn't come up, mm-hmm. and it and these are heated exchanges, right? These are, people are really angry. I'm not, so, you know, I'm not there. And I think I understand it, but it, it bothers me, Supervisor Perez, because I'm listening to this anger and I'm hearing an anger in my American friends and my, and, and I, that I haven't heard before, right? And I, I listen to this, I go, where are we going? And maybe the better question is, how do we find our way back to where we were? So, Richard, this year we opted out of having a birthday party for my baby sister because last year's birthday party ended up in a screaming match about the virus, masks, civil war, uh, everything. In a home where I really thought my you know, my group of family that I celebrate with, which is beyond my immediate family, but still pretty close, sisters and whatnot, that we were pretty closely aligned on big stuff like this. You know, I was out on Sunday, door to door with the virus, uh, excuse me, with the vaccine for the virus. <clears throat> and we did, and we started off at California Park. And while we were waiting to for getting everything in order, I started walking the park and pulling some folks over. And there was a young man, a millennial, he had a very nice dog, he was hanging out at the park. I couldn't tell if he was homeless or not, but he seemed to be a guy who hangs out there quite a bit. And I went to, came to him and said, uh, you know, this is what we're doing here. You know, if you get the vaccine, you won't die. And you won't, you know, you'll stay out of the hospital. You're going to stay alive. I don't know. I can't promise anything beyond that, right? Our body is so unique and symptoms vary, but, but certainly you won't die. And he said to me, well, the virus is, the virus is natural. I'm sorry. Excuse me. He said, Death is natural. The vaccine is not. <laughs> wow. To which really floored me. I was not expecting that. Okay? That was a pretty reasonable and, you know, intelligent yeah. thing to say. And I couldn't help but say, okay, you know, that is your your liberty interests and you have that right. And as I've shared with you, Richard, very, very, very close members of my family will not take the vaccine. It is more than confounding to me. It's, it's tragic and heartbreaking and maddening. And I don't, I really struggle to even convert converse about it in a helpful way. But I just thought, you know, this gentleman, what an antisocial, honest statement about where he is, right? 
for him, he, he if he's going to die and even endanger others, mm -hmm. that's a natural state of things when a pandemic or the plague or the Spanish flu, right, inflicts us. He's and and you know his sort of his resistance to me being his resistance to the government, his resistance to pro-social society, I think is exactly what we're seeing, Richard, in these tents all around our communities, all around this country. There is an anti-social, you know, we see it with uh, with uh, some of the attitudes towards law enforcement or just government in general, mm -hmm. a lack of trust and, an, and a lack of a belief in the structure as it is and the people who pretend to care. I think the cat's out of the bag, Richard. And, you know, in this next chapter of politics, we're going to have to be brazenly and brutally honest and open in a way we haven't been before. Because I, I just think I just think the smoke and mirrors is yeah. it, people are really sick of it. The whole what we're seeing, you know, out of in the behavior leading to the recall, uh, you know, this is so distasteful, so disgusting for so many people, mm -hmm. they just can't take it anymore. Right, right. And, and you and I both know that society is stratified. We have always had the uber wealthy that really run everything. You know, their lifestyle is not the same as the rest of the world. It isn't. They have mm -hmm. some luxuries built in as a result of having mm -hmm. capital, reputation, and powerful friends. I mean, it's ridiculous to think we're going to have some you know, completely egalitarian society. Mm -hmm. But but the the hypocrisy, the lack of concern for regular regular Americans who don't know if they're coming or going from a government who really can't get its act together, even in its messaging, is just well put. very frustrating. Well, you teed that up perfectly because we're here to talk about the 2020 <laughs> census. I'm going to talk, uh, start with you, uh, Professor Gearhart. To me, this was stunning. And I, I think I knew it was coming. But it took me reading it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you live in this country or particularly live in, in states like the West where the, the, the changes are more profound. You see it. You live with it every day. But yet when I read it, I thought that's, that's, Mer that's my America for better, for better or for worse. And among the other things, for the first time ever, the, the white population shrank. It's well under uh, 60, 60%. You have the entire definition of what it means to be an American, how people self-identify, you know, because of the inter, interracial marriages, how people have sometimes have to choose between mm -hmm. I am, I am a Hispanic or I am an Asian or I am Asian or I am a white or I'm white or I'm black or whatever. The, from picking up on what Leticia just said, we have all of these really important issues at the front, and yet, and now you look right under that, and you see this America will never be the America it was 20 years ago. And in 20, in 20 short years, it's going to be profoundly different. When you look at this as a trained economist, and you look at this, and you, and you look at the arc of history of what the, where this country has gone, tell me what this says to you. I actually uh, liken this back to, uh, you know, the East Coast in the 1820s, 1830s, when it used to be English that came over. And then it started the Irish, 
the Germans, the Scandinavians. And so, you know, there were a lot of issues because the English considered the Irish inferior, the Germans considered everyone inferior. So I see this stratification as kind of reminiscent of what we saw, especially in the big cities on the East Coast before the Civil War. Um, and yeah, it caused issues in the near term because there was lots of tension. There was lots of conflict. But over the long term, look at what happened in Boston. Look at what happened in New York City. Look at what happened in Washington, D.C. You know, now those places are, you know, financial centers of the world. Those places are political and social centers of the world because you have just this very robust economy with lots of different people offering lots of different things, offering lots of different ideas. And so I think over the next, you know, maybe five or 10 years, it's going to be a little, uh, it's going to be a little bit of awakening, especially in rural, relatively white America, where they have to get used to the fact that they are now uh, competing for jobs against people who are used to very manual blue collar labor, uh, who are willing to work at potentially sub-minimum wages underneath the table. Um, and so that's going to cause a lot of strife. That's going to cause a lot of angst that could, you know, erode tax bases in different counties across the country. But over the long run, you know, economies have to be diversified. And it's not just diversified in terms of industry. It's diversified in terms of people. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important part of economic growth. If you look at a lot of countries that are kind of stagnating, they haven't had large influxes of immigrants. They haven't had large influxes of people with different viewpoints, different religions, different cultures, just different backgrounds. And so, yeah, perspectives. It's, it's, I I think it's, I'm looking forward to seeing what America is going to look like because America was envisioned as this melting pot and we are starting to see this melting pot and I think it's only a good thing in the long term for America. Well, let me uh, that that's a valid point. We have always up to this point we we value we say we value diversity that we we love we love having the Ethiopian restaurant, you know, in our in our neighborhood. How cool is this? Uh, we value the diversity of opinions, and that has been, I think, one of the the hallmarks of America. As long, among a lot of people, as long as the white population was still, you know, in control. And I, I don't want to. I'm 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 one of the guys I'm talking about. You know, whether consciously or subconsciously now that's changing when you yourself become a minority i guess my question here whoever wants to handle it are we making too much of how white america is uncomfortable with this we see the uh, uh, the, the trump train we see what that unleashed you know where are we with that? You know, Richard, this is such an interesting question. We're here at the first time where we see a change in white population, largely because folks in charge in America tend to be Anglo, white, and they tend to have some means if they're in charge. I'm not talking all the poor whites we have that are, we have lots of that, okay? It's complicated. But what we have seen is a concentration really of whites in charge of things. We see this in the criminal justice system, right? You look at your jury pools, you look at who your DA is, your judge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 
I think it's unfortunate that so much power and capital has been concentrated in one group because asking that group in a sort of zero-sum way to give up what they have, I think is unnatural and I think people are going to fight it tooth and nail. I don't want to give up the little I have. You don't want to give up the little you have. I don't think that's the right approach, Richard. And I believe so, so wholeheartedly, people ask me why I still do Democratic politics in Kirk County. And they say, you must be crazy. You must say, you know, you must be a glutton for pain. And and I go, you know, I, I just really don't believe that that bluster on the surface is as deep as we think it is. And, and I mean this in particular with white America because it's really where I have focused my time, Richard. Almost like an anthropologist, if you You're will. S- she's studying us. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, I totally am. It largely out of Like necessity. gorillas in the mist. Totally, <laughs> totally, right? Should I be flattered or offended <laughs> completely flattered so you know I, I i really think that you know the way in which we talk about the issues and the way in which we as as racial minorities or people that have not been in a lot of power historically how we sort of help help our fellow americans you know not be so afraid of each other yeah. i really think this is so important richard and i think i've shared with you this story at, that at the that i had at the white house during trump's presidency where i went with a bunch of supervisors most of them were from southwestern united states mm-hmm. most were men most were white and i was one of the few latinos in the room there's probably 300 people in there and it was really intense right because it's the, it's the white house so as we walk into the row I was sitting at, I had to sit next to someone who, from the look on his face and his body language, did not want me to sit next to him, right? I, that's just an assumption, but that's how it felt to me, and I had to sit there, so I sat there, and literally three hours later, we hadn't said one word to each other. But then I had this interesting exchange with one of, with the drug czar, who I thought was totally brilliant in his response to me. But we had a little power back and forth because he wanted me to say I like the Washington Redskins and I actually like the Buffalo Bills. So since I wouldn't do it, he kept making me sit down and the crowd was cracking up and laughing and it was sort of getting a little bit hairy. But then I just kept standing back up and finally he just capitulated. He said, all right, Buffalo Bills, what do you want to know? And it was a question about in-custody drug treatment and he gave me this brilliant answer and it was exactly what I needed. And as soon as that happened... Richard, the entire cadre of Trumpers around me changed with me like that. Mm. Turned around, they started high-fiving me. These are all folks making fun of me just a few minutes before and not talking to me for the previous three hours, even though we were right at each other's space. You guys are elected officials. I mean, why? I, I, we would, I would think that your, your circle of people would be open to turning around somebody who's sitting next to them and go, hey, I'm John, what's your name? Where are you from? You know. And especially since, you know, the de- the Democrats tend to treat ethnic groups as monoliths when we know right. that you know right. uh, That's uh, such a good point when a Hispa- a point. when Hispanics are actually a pretty red red and growing up for grabs. group they're up for and grabs, no doubt yeah. and and so it was amazing to me Richard the change in tenor behavior and and literally what they kept saying to me was you stood your ground you stood your ground it was really quite fascinating Richard high fiving me hugging mm-hmm. me. Right when we're when we were done, we went down the hallway and had a little, you know, wine and hors d'oeuvres, and and there was a group that was clearly the biggest Trump fans in America, the woman with a big gold, 
you know, diamond and gold Trump brooch, mm -hmm. right, comes up to me and says, would you take a picture of us? Do you mind? I said, of course I'll take a picture. Of all the people in the room, I'm the only person of color, yeah. the only obvious Democrat by, by, by appearance, you know, according to a sort of, you know, black and white view of the world. They come to me and ask me. And then brought it up again. They're like, well, we thought you were great in there. You stood your ground. And I thought it was so interesting, Richard. And, you know, it really made me think again and reflect about as a person of color, what I'm assuming about other people, uh, what they're assuming about the positions that I'm gonna take because of how the media sort of does these things. And, and it really made me wonder if if we're, racial minorities in particular, are are really overplaying and, and really missing what can be moments of connection with with other people. I just so believe that. And it's yeah. frankly, I see it in Kirk County all the time. Uh -huh. Look at us here. We're a perfect example of that. Yeah. Uh, Professor Gearhart, I'm, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we used to call, what we still call minority communities or people of color. Because the census would argue, it, to me, it is arguing that we are becoming less of that and more mixed race we're mongrels we're mutts you know and i'm wondering how that might play out let me just give you a couple statistics here uh, among other things it says the number of non-hispanic -his americans who identify as multiracial jumped by 127 percent mm -hmm. over the decade for people who identified as hispanic the increase was even higher the number of americans who say they are non-hispanic and more than one race jumped, doubled, jumped to 13.5 million from 6 million. Now, to me, I read that and I go, and I think it's a good thing. You know, we're all learning to live together. We're marrying together. We're having Thanksgiving together. Our children are growing up a little bit of everything. You you saw it in, the, in, in Barack Obama. You see it in, in our vice president. You know, I think these are good things. But yet, how does that play with identity politics? And politically, how does that play uh does, is that a good or a bad thing, I suppose? It's probably going to take a realignment of, you know, traditional political beliefs where, again, you know, we treat these ethnic and minority groups as these monoliths where they're going to vote one way. It's, you know, during, what, the 2020 presidential election, black America is going to vote Democrat. Well, you know, you have to be very careful about making these statements, especially in large parts of the country. Um, and I, I think... What, you know, it's interesting to see all these massive number increases. I think part of it is the census has changed how they ask the questions. They've increased the number of racial and ethnic groups that you can identify with. But also look at like Ancestry.com or any of these other things where people are investigating more, you know, their background and, you know, taking pride in that background where, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, I'm 13%. Uh, Mexican-American or I'm 25% Danish-American or whatever it may be. I, I think in terms of politics, I, I think what a lot of people are going to have to start realizing is that if you look at kind of the socioeconomics of rural white America, which tends to be very poor, live in poverty, go through Mississippi, and mm -hmm. you haven't seen poverty until you go through Mississippi yeah. where plumbing is not a sure thing. Electricity is not a sure thing. Right. Rural white America looks a lot like poor Hispanic America, which looks a lot like poor black America. Mm -hmm. And we've almost treated them as separate groups. And we've right. ignored large swaths of the population over time where, 
oh, you know, because you're this one ethnic group, you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps. We have to help, uh, you know, we need, we need to, I, we kind of need to recognize the fact that yes, race has played a role in economic outcomes over time and we should do everything possible to eliminate those. But, you know, race is not the sole factor in determining economic outcomes right now. And there are lots of poor people who are in their position, not because of their race, but because we haven't invested in their education, we haven't invested in their training, we haven't invested in their industry, we haven't provided them anything, and they're bitter about it. They, 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 you know, they see the media every day and they see what they consider handouts. Why am I not getting these handouts? And we have to do a, ver a much better job of ensuring equity among people in poverty. And I'd much rather treat people in poverty as a monolith, ignoring the ignoring what race is about. Yes, we, we can keep affirmative action. We should keep affirmative action. Yes, we should keep the Americans with Disabilities Act to make sure that, you know, people who identify differently are treated similarly. But we need to do a much better job and stop ignoring the fact that poverty is poverty regardless of your race. Mm, that, that is so spot on. And, you know, the census reminds me. Richard, of the possibility that in a hundred years we're all likely going to look like Keanu Reeves, right? I mean, with all of the mixing, I would hope. Right? This is a good-looking good man. The, the future is bright for all yes. of us. Yes, um, I'll take his hair. Right, right. Uh, I'll take the buddy. But listen, so the re I, I'm with you on uh, poverty being its own sort of animal and monster, and 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 I'm right with you there. You know what I think so unfortunate, Richard, as a person of color observing uh, my you know wonderful wonderful anglo friends and and many who i have seen who i think have a lot of hate right that not friends necessarily but just observations richard yeah. i think it's so unfortunate that so many white americans have said white america are are the true americans because it is it has over time serve to exclude a large group of people who we need to think of themselves as Americans. We need their identity to be firmly rooted in red, white, and blue, right? Much more than race, which separates us and is confusing. It is not, it is not a legitimate basis to look at anybody. When we do that, we give a whole lot of people who don't deserve the benefit of the doubt, the benefit of the doubt, simply by what skin color they have, right? Let's to say nothing of the negative, right? It's just people are getting benefits they don't deserve, rather than us looking at the individual and saying, what are you responsible for and what are you capable of? And let me tell you what Thomas Jefferson says. There's a wonderful series on Ken Burns that you can get on Amazon that will just, it's the most mesmerizing stuff I've seen in a long time. And, and his standard, right? His standard for leadership and elected office was two simple two simple tests virtue and ability virtue and ability those are the people we should be putting forth not necessarily blacks in a black district or latinos in a latino district we know how many sellouts there are within racial groups we have terms for them uncle tom latinos say tio tomas you know it's the same thing right tom tio tomas, tio tomas. <laughs> I like oh, oh, it's uh, quite prevalent. And, and it, it really is the danger with race, right? Is that, is to think that we know anything about anyone based on race. Now, here's what I do believe. I do believe white folks have 
a visceral reason to have some fear about the future, about their kids and their grandkids and what their life's going to be like in a country that has largely been identified you know, red, white, and blue as Anglo-Saxons, right? I mean, that's just the way it's been. And this is this, this is true for any period of history and anywhere on the globe. You know, I mean, racists turn over all the time. Who's in charge? Who gets mm-hmm. toppled? You know, I mean, if we're looking at a long enough time period, none of this stuff matters. Who knows in 500 yeah, years right. what humanoids are going to look sure, like, right. if we're even going to be here. Right. On the globe, right? I mean, right, we don't right, know. Right, right. It's so silly, but but I find so fascinating the diff- the how much how little we know about each other, and how much we need to spend some time with each other. And frankly, how many of my white friends have no minority friends? Right. I can't tell you how many don't have one black friend, mm. not one. And 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 I not because they're bad people. They are literally. In different spaces, they live on different uni- on different well, let me, planets. Let me pick up on that because you, know, yeah, like, wow. you are. I don't know if you're still a member of the what is it, the National Association of Counties. Oh yeah, is, is that? Oh yeah, are you an officer in that group? Uh, officer at CSAC, I was, and oh, now I'm that past was the, president. The, the state, yeah, right. Uh, but anyway, and you had mentioned being at some national convention or, or something, and you came back, and one of the things you 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 told me uh, stuck with me. But you said, Richard, if you go to one of these things and you you see this expanse of white people, what you were you were describing earlier, and you can't lose sight. It seems to me that a lot of these questions, uh, they're one size fits all questions because it's a different question here in California than it is in Southern Mississippi or Absolutely. Albany, Georgia. You know, to my fellow Southerner over there, and because you saw that. I mean, these conversations we're having here are going to sound a lot different in a predominantly white area. So that leads me to this question: Can we can can we assume that all the things that what it means to be an American, which were part of a white culture forming this country, can they endure in a multiracial America or? Because they're questions of, you know, honor and duty and things like that, that one could argue should have nothing to do with race. But but yet they came from a European culture and background and values. Can they endure in a in a, in a really different America? Well, they must. And they've got to ex- in incorporate racial minorities into the view of who America is. And that part is hard. Richard, that's an existential question. It's hard for any group, and I don't put any judgment really on anyone, but I implore my white brothers and sisters, as I've done with you, Richard, mm-hmm. right, you know, to, to make time. You do, I don't have to tell you anything. You do it already. You make time and you create space to have difficult conversations. But more of us need to do this, and we have to really, Richard, get away from race as much as we can and renew an American identity that keeps us... <laughs> where we need to be at the top for the next hundred years. I mean, that really should be all of our focus, right? Is in having a strong and smart border, right? That is consistent with our economic values. The truth is extremely powerful people get away with a lot, 
and they benefit a lot from mm-hmm. an easily exploitable labor pool. The reality is most Americans are trying to just survive. 78% living check to check before the pandemic. I imagine that's worse now, that's right? But stunning. just on it, as a conservative- Does that sound right to you, 78%? Yeah. It's NPR. No, no, I'll get, it's NPR, and, they've, and they say it all the time. The amount of Americans literally living check to check, as I said earlier, includes a lot of white folks. So black and brown folks and racial minorities need to realize white folks do not have this perfect existence. They don't necessarily have all the answers, and they weren't there to screw you over for everything you feel you've lost, okay? Mm-hmm. These are new conversations with new people, and we've got to zero in on the American identities by which we share together. Otherwise, Richard, we're too diverse as a country. We're talking tribalism everywhere. Right. You're talking states seceding and wanting to leave the union right. because they feel that their identity or the, who they are is not going to be incorporated into the American dream. And, and that's just crazy because if we're good faith players, right, we can look at each other and go, we, we experience the same things in life. We have the same struggles, right? Are we different culturally? Yes, we are. White people have dominated America. Now, that may change you know, in 100 years as, as different groups infiltrate those institutions, but white folks are still largely in charge of almost entirely law enforcement. Almost, you look at the FBI, you look at the mm-hmm. CIA, who's there? I mean, yeah, let's right. not kid ourselves. We've gotta make space and, and make sure that folks at the top don't get too afraid because they still have all the resources and weaponry. And, and I think it's a mistake to make people at the top be afraid. Yeah, absolutely. Anything to add to that? Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, the tough conversations need to be where white America acknowledges that there have been laws put into place that have impeded economic growth for people of color. I mean, people who are alive today experience Jim Crow. You know, Jim Crow was into the, ni- the 1970s right. and 1980s. <laughs> I, and, you know, and I, I know it's one of those hot topics, critical race theory, you know, but we need to have the conversations that, yeah, we have put impediments in the place of people of color, communities of color that have limited what they've done. You know, again, you know, talking about the Jim Crow laws, well, that's what, two, three generations maybe? We know that that impedes economic progress because... Mm-hmm. I look at what my parents have done and I want to improve upon that. And if, you know, we've impeded education for black America, we know that they all started a lower educational base. But I also think we need to recognize that, you know, white America does suffer from a lot of the same ills. Mm -hmm. School quality in a lot of rural America is terrible. And school quality is not necessarily a function of race. It's a function of the number of teachers and the quality of teachers. And you just can't get the teachers in a lot of these areas. So I I think, you know, the conversation has to be made on both sides where we each give a little bit. And, um, you know, social media kind of lends itself to you screaming at someone and cursing someone and having no repercussions. I I think we need to have more of these conversations face to face. Um, And if you look at it, you know, if you look at a lot of the cities, a lot of the sti- a lot of the cities are a lot more ethnically diverse, and you see people of color moving into the more traditionally white communities, mm-hmm. or you know the gentrification where white families move into people of color communities. Is you know they start to build up the economic engine. And I think those are only good things. The one hope I have is that the younger generation is a lot less white. And is a lot more, yeah, my daughter, like my daughter's six and her, two of her best friends are people of color and she doesn't see color. And I know that's kind of one of those, 
ways that a lot of people say, oh, I don't see color. It's a lot of what adults use as a defense mechanism. But really, children today really don't see it. And they're really playing with a lot more diverse populations. When I was growing up, um, the most diverse kid I had in my class was a kid from Georgia, the country. And I, it took me years to figure out that Georgia was a different country rather than uh, just another <laughs> state somewhere else in the United States. But my daughter, you know, my daughter plays with kids of all races, all ethnicities, all different identities, and she accepts them for who they are. So I, I, you know, 30 years from now, I can see this younger generation, even maybe in households where the parents are not as welcoming of different viewpoints, kind of shedding those viewpoints. Mm-hmm. You know, look, look at what's happened with uh, homosexuality. We've become a lot more accepting of homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, gender identity is going to be the new kind yeah. of acceptance, but each generation gets a little bit more accepting of previous generations, and that gives me hope. Yeah. That is hopeful. And, you know, Richard, we need better leaders. Okay. The party system that we have, the federal system is completely broken, Richard. It's broken. And we have people who, because they fit a certain classification, they're supposed to be something. We're supposed to get something from them. It's outrageous. What happened to virtue and ability? Do you have actual virtues that make you a person that should lead other people? Richard, <coughs> you see, you want to know a person's excuse me, <coughs> character? Give them power and see what they're about. Oh, we don't boy. know that. Oh, yeah. White, black, brown, man, woman, old, poor, fat, skinny, we do not know your character under certain circumstances until it is tested under that. Mm-hmm. We should be promoting the kind of leaders who have demonstrated that they have virtues of courage, honor, sacrifice, right? Sacrifice for, for your neighbor. Put the mask on, because your neighbor might die. Right. Or you're, you're, I mean, really, right? right. I, we should be able to make sacrifices for the greater good. Our leaders should be willing to do that at the drop of a hat. Right. They should have courage and honor the virtues that, you know, the, in, a, in a Greek Aristotelian sense, make you worthy of being at the top, right? And then, of course, ability. You should have the capacity. You should be educated. You should have a skill set, right? Those are the people that we should have at the front because then when you have these contending issues which feel in, irresolvable, you have people with character deciding them. And going, what is fair here, rather than what does my party say, or well, you're brown and you're white, so you know I'm supposed to sympathize on this side. Yeah, That's right. outrageous, and we got to get away from it. Yeah. I want to talk uh, for for a second about uh, the angry white male, and I don't I don't want to be unfair, and and I, I, well, I don't want to be unfair about it, but I run into it all the time. Uh, people in their 50s, 60s, certainly older who are really having a hard time with what, how America is changing. Uh, and they don't articulate like that, articulate it like that, but I hear it. Uh, I hear it about immigration policies, and I'm not dismissing any concerns about border security at all, I mean, going beyond that. But there is a palpable anger that... Uh, at least from my time on this earth, is is loud, and I think it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. I will ask you, Professor Gearhart, what, what do you make of it? Yeah, I think it's mainly an economic argument. You know, it's that the poor, angry, white American who has, 
you know, family income of $20,000 below the poverty line for a family of four, which I, I don't know anyone that can live on $20,000 with a family of four. Um, you know, they don't want handouts, but they want a level playing field. They want education opportunities. They don't get education opportunities. It's hard for them to escape their communities. They live in these isolated communities. They live there. They die there. They don't have the opportunity to go to college. You know, they have very poor quality high schools. They're working in their teens in Appalachia. They're working in coal mines when they're 16, 17 years old. That's all they know. And so I think what you're seeing with a lot of angry white America is they feel that they're just being ignored when it comes from for their economic outcomes that we're willing to you know, with immigration, we're willing to bring in other people who are going to undercut them. And what are they going to do? They don't have the skills. There's no place they can go. There's no technical college. There's no technical training center. There's no job centers to teach them how to build a resume. They don't have any other opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to recognize that, Yeah, again, poverty is poverty, regardless of your race or your gender. Hopelessness is hopelessness. And, and, we need to recognize that they need the same opportunities to dig themselves out of the hole because mm. intergenerational poverty in Appalachia, if you've ever driven through Appalachia, Appalachia is a beautiful place of the country, but it's poor. It is just Third world. poor. It, it's, yeah, oh, it, it is astonishing. You see similar economic outcomes that what you would see in Guatemala or El Salvador where people are actively fleeing to escape those yeah. lives. Mm. And so I, I think what I, I think what politicians need to do a better job of, or even just everyday people is, you know, if we don't provide opportunities for poor white America to escape, either through education, through jobs, through training, we're going to have them sit and be resentful of people who, who they feel have been given you know, maybe a boost up. Yep. Yeah. yeah. How do you explain uh, white America, the, the the people who own an insurance agency or uh, an executive at a bank or whatever who feel that way? People who have gotten their slice of America, but they're not worried about upward mobility themselves. That That's a lot harder. Um, it, it probably has to do with just, you know, it's hard to change your mindset. They grew up in the 1960s and 1970s. They probably grew up in largely white suburbs or largely white enclaves. It's just difficult. You know, it's kind of the old man get off my lawn syndrome where, you know, old people just yell about, oh, kids these days, you know, skateboards and all that. I see this kind of angry, educated white male is kind of more of the old man get off my lawn where maybe, you know, cultural differences. They don't understand the cultural yeah, differences. Right. They don't understand, you know, m maybe they, um, they, they don't understand maybe native languages being spoken at home, those sorts yeah, of yeah, things. Right. So I see it more of just like kind of this age thing where as but we get older, got it. yeah, got we, it. we just, it's harder it's to hard deal to with change. that stuff. It should change as we get older. 
I got it. I got it. Also, it's a, it's a bit of compassion fatigue too, Richard. You know, I said, so many of my good white friends tell me, you know, they're just tired of hearing about it. It's yeah. just constantly right. the right. whining from racial minorities. You know, it's really been helpful to me to re- realize, you know, you're not always going to get, you You don't always have a sympathetic ear about such issues. And frankly, you could be doing more damage than good because, you know, for some folks they are going, look, I'm not, I didn't make it that, that well either. Or, you know, I've got a special needs kid or I've got you know this my wife's leaving me or my son's gay and I don't know what to do but I mean this life is just at all these layers yeah. right and so we have to hear from a group over and over and over how they haven't gotten theirs when life really is hard for everyone I just think that that doesn't help and it's one thing I try to tell racial minorities to listen to other folks and to recognize your issues are not the only issues and the more you pounce on it you're going to make more enemies than friends and that's just that's not a good long-term strategy yeah, let me ask you both. I'm going to start with you, Professor Gearhart, on the the depopulation of certain rural counties because the census showed, among other things, that core metro areas grew 9.1%. That's that's pretty hefty over over a decade, uh, while the suburbs grew 10.3%. By contrast, small towns saw their populations shrink uh, slightly. Again, I'm getting back to the theme of when you talk about America, you're talking about a lot of different audiences and different concerns, different tribes, and different races, and different backgrounds, and different world experiences, and et cetera, et cetera. How difficult does that make dealing with a changing America when you have, you know, you, we're going to get back into the coastal elites? We saw it. We see it during every election. Nobody campaigns in flyover country. Kansas doesn't have enough electoral votes, you know. How does that play in a in in a, a big country with 350 million people like we do? Yeah, it's interesting because you you see a lot of the traditional industries that are in these rural small towns, rural small cities, blue collar, labor intensive, manufacturing, uh, natural resources, mining, farming, and you know those are largely going away. And so you're seeing a lot of younger generations escaping for the better opportunities uh, offered by suburbs and by big cities. Uh, I, I think it's kind of a natural evolution of the what we're seeing in the American economy in general, where we're seeing reductions in the value of blue collar jobs, which is a little bit unfortunate, you know. We, we, we've neutered our domestic manufacturing base, which in some ways is a good thing. You know, it allows us to buy more things much more cheaply, obtain living standards that were before unobtainable. But we've also, you know, we haven't provided opportunities for these individuals who are losing these jobs and, you know, that's why I give major props to the community college system here in Kern County, where at uh, Bakersfield College, I think they have an associate's degree in uh, air conditioning or something to do with AC. Yeah, rep- yeah, right. That's that's phenomenal because think about people who are really good with their hands, manufacturing, maybe made stuff, but can now go get a relatively low cost degree mm-hmm. and escape and Richard, we've talked about this with Mike Turnipseed from the Taxpayers Association, right? We get two minds together that don't necessarily see the world the same way. We get Mike, a Taxpayer Association guy, Perez, a Dem, 
you know, politician. And here we came together and devised the dual enrollment program, yeah. which we launched with 30 kids. I just saw over 100 kids just graduated with an AA. They're on their way to Berkeley and Los and UCLA big names, I mean, changing really the nature, That's culture, awesome. and expectation of our young people. But early, you should be able to learn to fix an AC in high school. That's my opinion. So as we are, as we launch these kids as freshmen, both enrolled at the community college and in high school, they receiving college credit, they graduate with an AA or even a year under their belt, all paid for. These are the kinds of things that we should be doing with all our differences, that's really what we should be doing with our time because we are closing the skills gap on a population that is you know, behind the eight ball, right? We're closing that without shaming anybody, without giving and making anyone else give up their job or give up their lot in life that they've earned, right? We're saying, let's close the skills gap. Let's close those, you know, the disparity between us and each other right? So that isn't so dominating by one group and another group completely left out. And frankly, the future workforce of America, mm. Richard Bean, this is a problem. Yeah. We need to be pumping out these new generation of young people there. We know are much more people of color. We know their communities are poor. We don't even have to look at the census yeah. data. Right. We know by virtue of being people of color, their communities are poor, their mm. schools suck, right? So right. we need to infuse those with a little, just an economic push that will make them be able to compete because they got to compete on their own merits. I'm sorry. You know, affirmative action is, you know, it closed the gap in so many ways. And, and, but, you know, it really left this huge, you know, this really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because they want to see people earn yeah, what they got. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to feel right. that they're giving anything up. Right. At the same time, we have a population with a huge disparity. So to me, we avoid that ugly stuff that draws us apart by focusing on the things that bring us together, like the mentorship program. We're doing a colored boys mentorship program. We're going to be mentoring young black boys at the new MLK school where my kids are there, right? And we're fixing up the area. We're improving the aesthetics. We're doing that with a good, a lot of good white folks. Good. It turns out they got the resources, the energy, the wherewithal. <laughs> it's like, I keep going oh, back. Oh, those people. <laughs> I, those people. I'm back at the same table again, Richard. But can I just tell you, yeah. God sends every single one of them. You're all in for the right reason. We don't sit yeah. around and talk race. We don't point fingers. We're just going to help these kids. And it will do more for race relations in Kern County than any, you know, fighting, throwing things and, you know, all the cussing on Facebook. You know, spend some time with someone who's different than you care about this country. This is the light of the world. I'm sorry, but it is. You saw people on a tarmac, what they will do to get away from the rest of the world, to just to be associated in any way with this great country and all of its potential and all of its current greatness. Well, we can be even greater, Richard. We make sure that folks are not left out, that are, that are willing to work hard, that are, you know, want, mm -hmm. want to close that skills gap. But, it, but it's going to take good white folks to say, you know, we're in it too. But, you know, we, without giving everything you got, yeah, nobody right. should have to give up everything. But you got to be into white America. We, I'm with you, I promise you. All right. Well, look, we're about out of time. I want to thank both you guys, Kevin Richard Gearhart and uh, Supervisor Leticia Perez. Uh, Dr. Gearhart, final question to you. As you look at this whole 2020 census, give me, in a nutshell, what, in, what encourages you about it and, and what might be serve as a warning sign that you see in here? Yeah. So I'll start with the warning sign first. Um, you know, as we change, you know, healthcare, all these, you know, all these systems are built on what we've traditionally seen. And so, especially here in Kern County, now um, where Hispanics are the majority in the county, they have unique health challenges. 
the the way that the healthcare system attacks the Latino community is different than the way that they would attack the white community or the black community. You know, it's just different culturally, like different breakfasts, even something as simple as that. The decorations in your home. I mean, it's just how you talk to them, how you encourage them to go see your doctor regularly or get a vaccine is different. And I think that's something we just need to keep our eye on is how we do those sorts of outreach programs. What's encouraging to me, and especially here in Kern County, is again, we need a diverse economy. Um, And that's not just in terms of industry, that's in terms of peoples. And, you know, if you think about what different cultures, the value added that different cultures can bring to the workplace. With a skill set. With a skill set. It can't just be culture. It's got to, there's have to be real skills that contribute to the actual economies of this country. Absolutely. But if you look at like, you know, if you were to look at recent Latino immigrants, you know, very hardworking, you know, typically a lot of blue collar, but just, you know, talk about how maybe to infuse that, you know, Mm-hmm. those values into the rest of the economy where I, if I see my coworker, you know, working his ass off, working her ass off, I'm much more willing to do it too, because, you know, we're part of a team. We're yeah, part of a community. Right, right. So, you know, I, I see a diverse economy as something that is necessary. And, you know, again, the skill sets as supervisor press has repeatedly harped on. It's important. And I, I, I I'm pleasantly surprised with how seemingly well people are taking these census changes because you know they're it, big aren't they it's it's, it's massive it's and i don't i don't know if it's a lot of people just not trusting the news anymore and those sorts There's of things yeah. but you know people have met this with almost it's pretty cool instead yeah. of oh dear lord you know we're losing America. Right. So yeah. I, I, I've well, been pleasant. Depends on who you ask. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and, and where you ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah where you yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. right. What, totally. Supervisor Perez, to you, will wrap this thing up. Well, what gives you hope and what worries you? As a Latino, it's hopeful because I know numbers can equate to real power. So as a person, you know, on the margins, if you will, I'd, I, that's hopeful because I know that those things are reality in political science. I am uh, a little more, I, I'm, you know, concerned that it, it is it is the proof it is the tangible infra- data that you know many white folks uh, needed to hear to justify a real fear and terror about the future one that doesn't look American one that's you know Mexican and with all these flags of the world and not you know the dominance of the American flag mm-hmm. and what that means really right for you know a hundred years from now whatever your offspring may be I mean that's scary that is the essence of what we obsess about is human beings, right? right? right. That, that, that is really important. So I, I just, I'm nervous about that. And I want to make sure that, you know, we're giving each other space to grow together and recognize that, look, this is red, white, and blue. And if we don't zero in yeah. on those values, we're going to be dominated by China. Well, you better learn Mandarin. Yeah, Spanish right. will be no good to you. Right. You better pick up Mandarin or something else, you know, no offense to the Chinese. But mm-hmm. if we can't compete, Richard, you know, the economy does what the economy does. Power is where power goes. Right, and, right. It, and for us to keep it, we've got to make sure our people can compete. And so I want to spend more time on thinking how do we build the strongest American workforce possible, right, with, re- with those values that the whole world, right, will, will die 
on the way to for the possibility of getting to. The entire world is full of people. If they thought they could get here, you know, they would do it and yeah. risk everything they have. Why? Because of the values that Americans have. Mm-hmm. That's it, Richard. We lose that. You know, we lose the ability to harness and highlight the best minds of the world, the best thinkers, right, that go, right. here's how we make American industry the finest, you know, and the best culture that everyone should strive towards. I'm sorry, I am American exceptionalist. I do believe that. I do have some sense about what those women in Afghanistan are going through. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going through that as a Mexican in America. I'm, yeah. count, I'm, I'm kissing the soil yeah. on this ground that I'm not on that tarmac as a woman. You better believe it. So look, this is a great country. It's still the greatest place in the world. We are different, Richard. We are different, and it's beautiful. We focus in and, and, and zero in on the American values that have made this country what it, the greatest place in the world. We're going to be just fine. And those numbers tell us we got to get to it faster than we thought. we got to get to it faster. Well, it's an important <laughs> step. I want to thank you guys for your time. Professor Richard Gearhart, Supervisor Leticia Perez. Thank always you. great to have you guys here. Sorry. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and Premier Lighting.